This is the Analyzing Anfield podcast on the Blood Red channel, bringing you the best tactical and statistical analysis of Liverpool FC. Hello everybody and welcome to this week's episode of Analyzing Anfield, your tactics and analytics podcast, courtesy of the Blood Red channel. I'm Josh Williams and as ever I'm joined by my co-host David Hughes. Dave, how are you getting on? Not too bad, thanks mate. <laughs> Probably better than, than yourself and, and many others tuning in today. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, it's been an up and down week. Obviously, Liverpool faced Arsenal since we last recorded. We also faced Real Madrid. Uh, we're going to have to address both of those. And in the same podcast, we're going to have to preview the second leg of Real Madrid because next week we will be recording on the Thursday, I think it is, Dave. Um Got a few days off, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. Just uh, getting them in, mate. Getting them in while I can. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, unfortunately, I've had to put the podcast back. I do apologise, everyone. Make it worth the wait. Yeah, so fair bit of talk about when I did in the middle. And then we're going to look ahead to Aston Villa this weekend. So, first things first, we'll go in chronological order. So, we'll talk about Arsenal first. Obviously, mm. even though I feel like talking about Real Madrid, to be honest, I might just talk about Real Madrid, seeing as it's, there's no agenda. What do you think, Dave? It's up to you, mate. You can briefly touch on Arsenal now, if you want us to, and then we'll go straight on to Madrid. The problem no. is, isn't it, with, with, with that Madrid game, uh, it's kind of sucked out the field goal factor from the Arsenal one, I think. Uh, yeah, everything felt is. pretty rosy, didn't it, after Arsenal? Yeah. Um, we'll talk about Arsenal first, but... I think one of the reasons Madrid's in my head is because we are recording on the Wednesday morning. Well, just just in the afternoon now, but it's still very fresh. It's last night, so that's why it's on my mind. But we'll talk about Arsenal first anyway. Impressed? Yeah, yeah, I was. Uh, you know, we said it could have been a bit of a tough game on paper. Um, although, you know, Arsenal looked like where they are on the table. A team who were kind of somewhere between 7th and ninth. Uh, you know, in terms of table positioning and most underlying metrics, uh, still looked like it could be a tough game, um, especially because they had they played really well for an hour uh, a couple of weeks before. You know, with the likes of Odegaard doing really well, and I have to say, from the outset, I thought Liverpool in this game were were really strong, uh, definitely the better side. Um, but it was just about getting that goal, wasn't it? And you almost knew, didn't you, that uh, maybe we're when Jota was going to come on, that that's when the goal would probably come, and, and sure enough, it did due to the form he's been in when he's been getting to get himself on the pitch. So, yeah, on the whole, I uh, thought it was a a more than deserving victory, and I have to say, I thought Arsenal really bad on the day, um, but I think you tie in a lot of that with how well Liverpool performed. Yeah, I thought Liverpool were brilliant. I thought Liverpool were for large periods actually. I thought it was very similar to just what we've seen this season because obviously it took about an hour for Liverpool to actually find the net. So it was very much a case of what's came before in terms of just Liverpool dominating all the play, seeing all of the ball, creating a fair few chances and stuff, but just struggling to put the ball in the bad net, weirdly. But the reason I was happier than normal is because I thought Arsenal would would cause us a few issues. I thought to get us on a break a bit more than he did. And I thought I thought that Liverpool would maybe struggle to break through them as often. But even though it felt like a great performance, I think what what kind of made the performance great as opposed to just another one where it was good but Liverpool didn't get a win was was Jota, to be honest. Uh, I don't know if you want to check now, Dave, while I'm speaking, but have a quick look at understat and have a look at the race map because um, it's it's quite amazing how despite Liverpool dominating the game Liverpool weren't dominating the chances at all up until the hour mark and literally on the hour mark Liverpool's shot count starts to take a real boost in terms of the quality of the shots the frequency of the shots and it it, it literally stemmed with a switch to to 4-2-3-1 mm, Yeah, I'm just having a yeah, I'm just having a look now and yeah, you're spot on. It's kind of like, although although Liverpool seem to feel really comfortable in the game. Um, yeah, no, I think that's a fair assessment, actually. Uh, Liverpool seemed really comfortable, but 
yeah, a large portion of the the shots and that kind of what turned out to be a high XG on the day uh, is generated, you know, on and the hour mark onwards, um, which is quite quite telling, really. Yeah, I mean, it, it sums up really why Liverpool have been. It sums up what the perks of maybe being a bit unpredictable. I think because of late when Liverpool have switched to some sort of from four, it, it's worked quite quite well. Like obviously against Madrid late in the game, Liverpool went to four two three one. I think, and okay, Madrid had a lead that they wanted to sit on by that stage, but Liverpool just generally looked a bit more dangerous. Mm. Um, and obviously the Arsenal game, it just resulted in. Three goals being bagged, Arsenal kind of collapsing a little bit, um, and I think it, it it remains to be seen how Klopp will kind of build the whole Liverpool two point under him that we've referenced a few times. But it does feel like, despite being so loyal to four two three over the years, it feels like four two three one is an option for him, and yeah. you know it, it, it was kind of his go to formation at Dortmund before he came to Liverpool. It was what he initially used when he first came to Liverpool as well. I think it was crucially probably the signing of Salah that kind of pushed him permanently away from 4-3-3-1 because as opposed to getting in like a number 10 type like uh, Alex Tejira or a Julian Brandt or whatever Liverpool were linked with at the time, we went and signed a left-footed inside forward and it kind of pushed Klopp towards uh, 4-3-3 but I'm just wondering, you know, at the end of the season, or maybe even for the rest of this season, providing we can keep certain players fit, four two three one, we could see a little bit more often. Yeah, I mean, even the four three three looks slightly adjusted. Uh, well, it has done at various stages in this season in terms of it almost resembling something like a four two three one in possession. If you think about it, you'd have like a it happens can't recall the game, but where Thiago was almost playing a little bit higher up the pitch in like that number 10, 10 role. And uh, I think there was Milner and someone else, maybe Wijnaldum on the day who were in, in the midfield with him and they were dropping into like a holding two. Um, and if you think about it, that's pretty much a 4-2-3-1, isn't it? Um, so it does feel like the even the 4-3-3 is being kind of adapting towards that shape. Uh, so I do expect to see something along those lines, specifically with the players that have been coming in um, over the next 12 months. One of the reasons I think there's been less of an option for Klopp is because for it to work, you need a, at a bare minimum for good attackers to be to be available and able to play. Ideally five, really, if you're going to substitute one. And Klopp's not really had that. You know, he's, he's always got Firmino, Salah and Mane at his disposal. But Joss has been... Obviously injured for a period. Shakiri's been in and out for quite a while. And behind those, you've got Minamino and Arigi. So in terms of Klopp having enough forwards for a four, two, three, one shape to be worth doing. I'm not sure he has, but you know, if, if Liverpool in the summer can get rid of Arigi and a bit more Deadwood and get in another Jota type player while keeping the current front three, he'll then have five quality attackers vying vying for Possibly three positions, which is why I think four two three one might come come into it a little bit more in terms of his thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if he was to sign a player like I don't know, maybe Rafinha or somebody like that, I think it would be different. It, you know, on a normal day, if Klopp opts for four three three, he could realistically be playing with with two top quality forwards on the bench from the start, and I'm not sure that will be such a sensible move in the future, depending on who Liverpool sign. Mm. Um, but in terms of the game, I thought Liverpool's counter-pressing game in particular was flawless. And I actually had a look at the numbers before, and I looked at penalty box touches. So Arsenal took, Arsenal accumulated a total in the game of five touches in the penalty box. That is their lowest this season by a mile. Well, by a mile, by about. Put it this way: it's the only time this season they've posted single figures in the touches in the opposition box department. Last season, they didn't post any anything below five. Season before, didn't post anything below five. Season before, didn't post anything below five. So, and that's that's the earliest stats bombs numbers on FB ref goal. So, 
dating back to at the very least 2017, this game was the fewest touches that Arsenal have posted in the box in a Premier League game, which I think kind of captures Liverpool's ability to just dominate the game, Dave, really. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it does. Um, obviously, it's highlighting that they had major issues getting into the attack and third, into the penalty area, which is obviously the danger zone from a Liverpool point of view. Um, couldn't get there, I thought. You know, in previous meetings, because obviously the two have played each other a lot recently, it, it felt like um, Arsenal have enjoyed... How can I put this? They've done well to beat Liverpool's press and they found holes in it. They've been quite composed in possession to build through the through the thirds, you know, when they do have those moments in possession. But And you did just touch on it. Um, this time, the, the, the press almost smothered them. They struggled. Uh, they couldn't progress in the same way. Seen a lot of the kind of things that we saw from teams, particularly last season, where the ball was, you know, just trying that longer out ball um, to, to try and create something to get up the pitch. And it was being swallowed fairly easy. And, you know, another wave of the pull attack would, would, would come. Uh, so that's why, even though, you know, the timing chart doesn't quite capture. Um, Liverpool's dominance in terms of chances created for that first hour, it felt very comfortable. Uh, and it did all, always feel to me like we just needed to see, you know, a clinical forward come, come on the pitch for um, for the goal to arrive. And obviously Jota comes on and he's just running really hot at the moment. Uh, he gets the goal and well, he gets two, doesn't he, in the end? And and that and that's kind of that's kind of it. It ends up being a really comfortable comfortable win. Yeah, obviously Trent got the assist and thought Trent played really well on the day. You know, there was plenty of talk around the whole England call and stuff like that. We don't really talk about England much on this pod, to be honest. And we haven't. I don't think we've actually addressed Trent not getting called up. But in terms of his his response, if you like, uh, not that he needs to give one, in my opinion, but I thought he, he played really well. He was back to his usual self. And in terms of the numbers for the game, Liverpool took a total of 16 shots. Arsenal took three. Uh, seven of Liverpool's hit the target. Two of Arsenal's hit the target. And Liverpool saw 64% of the ball. Which, again, just quite a surprise going into the game because I do think Arsenal have improved a little bit under Arteta. Obviously, they had players out injured and stuff. But I think it was kind of a merge for me of being surprised at how flawless Liverpool were while also being almost disappointed with with the performance showcased by Arsenal. Yeah, I, I, I did allude to it though on last week's show that I had a feeling they'd, they'd kind of maybe play like that again. Uh, you know, kind of play that kind of sitting in game a little bit and I think they did because they've had success doing it, but it just didn't work. And didn't, it didn't look like they had a plan B at all. They didn't look like they knew how to change change gears uh, and just find a response. That's one criticism I do have of Arsenal. They, they kind of feel like they are, they're not very good problem solvers as the game's going on. Um, it, they kind of, you know, have a pre-match plan. If it doesn't work, they don't seem to find a way around it. Um, maybe I'm being too critical. I don't watch them all the time, but just when I've seen them, that's that's one thing that really stands out to me. Um but yeah, I'll well I'll find out if that's that's the truth because at the end of the show, Guy will pop up our producer and he'll either agree with me or he'll give me down the bank. So probably the latter. <laughs> I didn't actually ask him what he thought of the performance before we started recording. Actually, that would have been a nice one. Well, he's tactically, uh, I think, not brought it up, hasn't he? So <laughs> <laughs> analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. Before we move on to Real Madrid, um. In terms of what this game means for Liverpool in a top four chase, obviously it was a good weekend for Liverpool. Um, Leicester drew. Did he get? Did he draw or get beat? Who did Leicester face again? Uh, I want to uh, beat. Yeah, Whoever. He, got beat. he got beat by City. Um, oh yeah. The teams around Liverpool got genuinely dropped points. Everton did as well, apart from West Ham, really. Uh, yeah. I think Spurs. But West other than Army. that, yeah, I know. But other than that, Liverpool generally made ground up on most teams around them. So I've just said Spurs. One Spurs didn't even win. Spurs do two over Newcastle. <laughs> yeah, uh, 
conceded late on, I think, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. Um, but in terms of what this means for Liverpool's top four chase, how are you feeling? I must admit, I was feeling better after the Arsenal game as opposed to now. Uh, <laughs> but I do think there's a chance, isn't it? It's it's up in the air at the minute. I uh, <laughs> I fancy Liverpool to 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 sneak in there. You know, I'm looking at the table now. So it was a you. You've got four points. No, it's only three points off West Ham. You know that that can change within a weekend, really. Uh, so there's West Ham, Chelsea, Tottenham, Liverpool, then Everton behind Liverpool. Although Everton have got a game in hand, I suppose, and two points behind with a game in hand. So it's still really, really tight. Uh, I just think the way I, I do fancy Liverpool just to sneak in. Um, the two for me are either Liverpool or Chelsea. I really like West Ham. I think they're doing some good stuff, but I just expect them to to just tail off at the very end. Uh, so it's between Liverpool or Chelsea for me. Yeah, in terms of five thirty-eight, which is a you know, you provide the general probability attached to the Premier League and stuff. Predictive model. Predictive model. Yeah, it's kind of it's very much up in the air at the minute in terms of third downwards. Really, so City are virtually guaranteed. To, to finish where they are. Uh, Manchester United, according to the model, are 97% likely to finish in the Champions League places. Then you've got Leicester with a 65% chance. Then Liverpool with a 53% chance. Chelsea, surprisingly, only with a 38% chance. But obviously, I assume that the model's factoring in the season performances, which includes what Frank Lampard Delivered. Obviously, Chelsea have been on a little bit of a different level since Sukal arrived. Yeah. West Ham, I've got a 28% chance. Spurs, 16% chance. And Everton, a 2% chance. And outside that, it doesn't really consider anybody. So it's kind of a six team race, probably a five. I mean, 2% for Everton's not, not the highest, is it? So it's probably a five team race with. The model currently ranking Liverpool above Chelsea, and the reason behind that is because Liverpool's general numbers, despite the obvious errors and stuff like that, Liverpool's general numbers are okay. Really, they, they see a lot of the ball, generally outshoot their opponents, generally post better expected goals than their opponents and things. So mm, yeah. that mean that means you're more likely to win most games. But it feels like Liverpool have more errors in them than Chelsea, and it feels like Liverpool are just more vulnerable than Chelsea, really. Although Chelsea had a bit of a collapse, you know, it was, it was a red card and stuff, weren't it? So. Yeah. Yeah, I think at the minute something like that happens, a red card, it's hard to take the game. I mean, it was still a pretty heavy collapse, wasn't it? You know, all things considered, to lose 5-2 to West Brom, but, you know, it, it, it does change the whole landscape of fixtures like that. I'll be honest, the model there is very representative of if I had to put percentages on on all the remaining teams uh, in terms of finishing the top four. You know, I think I do fancy Liverpool just because I think you've had some. You know, they've, they've been some had some decent recent domestic form in terms of picking up victories. You know, as we always touch, touch on the underlying numbers, the, the underlying numbers paint Liverpool still as a good side. We know there's flaws in them, which is why the, the way they are. But um, I just see the biggest threat is Chelsea because I do think Chelsea are a different animal under Tuchel, uh, despite that defeat. Now, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's his only defeat so far as Chelsea manager, isn't it? And it come under bizarre circumstances. So um, I think when you think of him being a great manager, well, I think he is anyway, at least a very good manager and the, the players they've got available compared to Liverpool. Like, Liverpool might have the better fully for first 11, but in terms of the squad, Chelsea's is, is, is better. Uh, I think that could, you know, play a part. Yeah. I mean, do you, th- do you think there's any likelihood that Leicester drop out? Because, obviously, they're getting looked at as in a really good position at the minute, and that's obviously true. At the minute, I'm not sure how many points clear so the fa- so the they're currently seven of Liverpool and five of fifth placed Chelsea. So look, it's not it's not within the it, it's you, not impossible, is it, that they could drop out? But 
I, I had a little look at the fixtures recently for a few pieces, just a general fixture, one in difficulty of most teams and stuff. And Leicester's end to the season is is quite hard. I mean, they, they've got to face a lot of teams around them. So the last game of the season, they face Spurs. Second to last game of the season, they face Chelsea. Third to last game of the season, they face Man United. And even the fourth to last game, it's against Newcastle United. But if you consider what Newcastle are fighting for and the players they've just got back, Leicester's end to the season, you know, it, it's it's not easy. And if Barnes remains out, if Madison keeps picking up these odd, these odd little knocks that, that he seems to be getting, I do think it's possible that Leicester have some form of wobble. And if Liverpool can at least put the pressure on them by just showcasing a degree of consistency... I feel like it's more likely then for a team like Leicester to shake even more than normal, given that you know a, a Premier League champion essentially is, is is coming up behind them, whereas they haven't really achieved fourth. This group of players they had it in the bag last season and kind of fell off for various reasons. It could get into the heads that it's it's maybe going to happen again and stuff. So it does feel to me as though, despite West Ham's form, it does feel to me as though it's out of Liverpool, Chelsea. And Leicester, and although I feel like Liverpool can do it, I'd, I'd be really surprised if Chelsea don't. The only thing with the Chelsea thing, though, is um, the way they've played since Tuchel came in, super concentrated, not given an inch on a defensive side. The way they kind of collapsed, Liverpool have collapsed a few times a little bit like that, whereby you, you're concentrated for such a long period, and then when you finally open the door, it kind of blows open for a few weeks and you can see loads and stuff and you kind of, out of nowhere, begin to spiral a little bit. Um, do you think there's anything in that? Do you think that's kind of a thing? Uh, it can be, yeah, but I think uh, I, I think because of what they've been doing before this game, like they've looked really good, they've been really strong and um, I think the circumstances of what happens, like losing a, a key central defender through a red card, I think there's enough variable balls there to kind of write it off as just a bad day at the office, you know, um, as opposed to it being like, a, you know, don't, don't want to bring it up, but say that 7-2 result early in the year for Liverpool, that just kind of felt like, well, what, what's going on here? You know, is the, is the deeper issues where, I say, I think that the, the red card in this one and things is just... Put it this way, I'll, I'll, re, I'll, I'll phrase it another way. I think it gives Chelsea a good enough excuse to just, you know, put it to one side and write it off as as, as just a bizarre day at the office. Uh, and if they co- if they come back and win, say if they win t- tonight, obviously we're recording on Wednesday. If they win tonight, I think that'll be forgotten about already. No, I agree. I just, you know, I think it was just worth shouting towards towards the top four because that's kind of all Liverpool are playing for at the minute, especially given the Champions League result. We might as well get to the Champions League anyway. Um, mm. Obviously, Real Madrid. The kind of kind of going into the game, we had a fair bit of confidence. Um, I don't think that was misled. Really, I think that was. I think there was logic behind that. But when Liverpool played, really bad, Dave. I mean, it's it's one of the worst performances I've seen this season comfortably, um, mm. with and without the ball. Just. So far from what you'd expect from a club team for me. Yeah, totally agree. Especially that first half was probably the worst half I've seen Liverpool play all season. Um, I know Villa's up there, that game I just mentioned, but I think for me, like people don't, I, I don't think if you if you watch Liverpool every week, you'll get it, but maybe if you don't, you won't. Obviously, Liverpool drop points, they've been beating games, you know, they've they drew, they, they have, they've had bad results, but it's it's been a recurring issue in all those games where Liverpool have kind of still been the same in the first, say, two-thirds of the pitch. And then they just haven't been able to create in the attacking third. And then at the other end, there's been like one big defensive error that's, that's cost them. But in this game, I thought Liverpool were second best in pretty much every department. Uh, I thought... Real Madrid looked really good. Liverpool, they, they seemed to be lacking intensity. They were really 
loose on the ball, just passes going out for th- like really basic stuff at that level. Like, you know, a 20 yard pass going out for a throw, just couldn't seem to maintain the ball, couldn't really put Madrid under any pressure. Um, okay, Madrid really impressed me. I'm sure I don't know if they did with you, Josh. I thought they were really, really good, but uh, yeah, Liverpool were just miles off it. Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. We will get to Madrid's approach because I think it was spot on. But in terms of what Liverpool did, yeah, you know, from an analytical perspective, we don't really need to go too deep on this one because it, it, it does feel like a lot of what Liverpool did wrong was just basics. Like, there was a point where, um, you know, you've got one album there with the captain's armband on. He's just spent the whole weekend on the bench getting a rest from international duty and stuff. And there was a moment where, in and around the halfway line, he just played a five-yard pass, I think, to Tony Cruz. And, uh, you know, they, they they can then break and stuff. And he, he's usually one of Liverpool's most most reliable players, one of the players Klopp can trust, um, one of the players who tends to keep the ball and doesn't really take many risks on it. So, you know, it, it just it felt like it was contagious, almost. It felt like, you know, just passes going astray. Obviously, Madrid impose a bit of a man-marking system, a little bit like Atalanta and Leeds United, albeit to a slightly lesser extent. And it, it, I think Liverpool played as though it had really been drummed into them before the game that Madrid are going to be stepping on, on your heels every time you get the ball and they're going to be coming right through you. And Liverpool played in a way in possession that almost suggested they were a little bit scared and a little bit mindful of getting clattered from behind. Um, mm. And obviously that might have been the case to an extent, given the man-marking scheme. But Madrid aren't that intense. Um, and Liverpool coped really, really well with the man-marking of Atalanta, the man-marking of Leeds. But against Madrid, they really played within themselves, I thought. And, you know, I, I appeared on a podcast earlier in the week, Managing Madrid podcast, I tweeted it out and stuff, really long preview, it was about two hours. And the lad who I appeared on with, I used to write with in a ta- on a tactics site. And he he sent me a DM during the game, we were, we were messaging during the game and stuff, and he, he said... I can't help feeling as though Liverpool are giving Madrid far too much respect with and without the ball. Um, it just it just wasn't good enough across a number of departments. But the way Liverpool approached the game, looking like they were kind of fearful, it was just really out of character. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, I mean, it's, it says about the respect with and without the ball. I did have looked this morning because for me, they just felt so passive to start with. Um, and also PPDA, which is a, a metric that you can kind of capture pressure high up the pitch. It was Liverpool was averaging out at twenty one for the first thirty minutes, and you know for context, in the first thirty minutes against Arsenal, it was five point nine two. Obviously, the lower equals the more aggressive. So twenty one is really high, quite passive, and yeah, that that kind of sums up just how sloppy it was on both sides of the ball. Uh, you know, with and without it, and it. I, I just can't quite get it. Um, I don't quite know why it was it was like that. Um, you know, teams just just. I don't know if we were going to get on it, and maybe I brought it too soon. But what did you think of the uh, of the team selection? Because I initially could see sense in it. Uh, I thought it was you know it, it made sense on paper to me um, in terms of you know bringing that cater, which meant to be this kind of press resistance. Beast who can get away from pressure and, you know, especially with the man marking, you know, you dribble past your man and bring others out, create spaces and things. But uh, obviously that didn't work, did it, at all? And I wonder if that was a big factor. No, I, I agree. When I when I first seen the team, I had no real issue. Um, I, I, I liked that Jota was playing ahead of Firmino. I think we needed that penetration, we needed that speed and the goals and things. Klopp directly referenced the need for dribblers because we were facing man-marking, a man-marking approach, really. So, you know, if if you can win your individual duel, which is more likely to happen if you can dribble on the ball and stuff, you're likely to come out on top. So I thought Liverpool selected a really press-resistant midfield in, in Wijnaldum and Keita. You know, they're difficult players to get the ball off and they, they, they can 
you know, keep the ball and stuff like that, whether they're under pressure, whether it's passing, whether it's dribbling. And again, speaking to the Madrid fan, the Madrid tactics analyst, if you like, he he, he messaged me again before the before the fixture and said, I don't know if you've seen, I don't know how many Madrid followers that you have, but everyone's kind of going a bit berserk as to how Klopp seems to have picked the pressing team. And, you know, Madrid, although they can certainly build and although they've got their own press resistant players, particularly in midfield, they do have the flaws. So looking at the team, I, I had no major problems with it. I, I thought, you know, Wijnaldum's had a week off. Keita has had all kinds of time off. But while constantly saying behind the scenes and building themselves up, and when the team just starts playing, you know, just giving the ball away, um, the flanks look wide open. Um, and obviously, we have to touch on it. Naby Keita came off on the 41st minute, which is, mm. again, really uncharacteristic of Liverpool and Klopp in particular. I, I think since he's took charge at Anfield, I can probably count the number of times he's made a first-half sub tactical on, on one hand. So, to, to not even be able to wait four minutes for half-time to go, you know, it, it's quite a statement, isn't it? And it doesn't bode well. Uh, yeah, I was just about to say, I think that you've just said that the key term, I was going to say there, it felt like a statement substitution for me. Um, what Whether that was a, a pure... Um, not attack, but maybe it was some, making a point of cater or maybe an admission that he'd got it wrong or a message to the team saying that you, you haven't implemented the plans that we had in place. I don't know, but I think you could have easily waited a few minutes unless you wanted to prove a point. And I think that's what Klopp was trying to do. Um, I must admit, I can see why he's done it because it was really bad. The first half was really, really poor. Um, you know, I don't want to pull any punches on it. It was, it was bad. So I can see why he's done it, but yeah, I was very surprised that he opted to do it there and then, which makes you think there was something behind it. And I don't know, for me, and I know we spoke about him recently, and I think you in particular were quite, you know, what's the term for, level-headed with the cater stuff in terms of being like, you know, he's still got a long time to go in his career. But I do wonder whether he's going to recover from that now because it feels like, Klopp might not have the trust in him because he he was so vocal, wasn't he? And in, in, in that he considered him to be really important for that fixture beforehand, and to bring him off after forty one minutes, I think you lose it, the trust of your manager now. And I'm not really sure when his next opportunity will 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 arrive to kind of you know be that guy again. Well, that, that's what that's the way that came to mind for me. To be honest, the whole trust thing, like you know, years ago. Klopp was persistently selecting the likes of Milner, Henderson, Wijnaldum in midfield. And it got, it, it got a term level that had an Everton. It was called the Brexit midfield at the time and stuff. And, you know, people had issues with it because of maybe the lack, the lack of technical prowess in that, in that group of players. But it's just a lot of it stems from the fact that Klopp can trust those players to execute whatever the game plan is to a high level. And whatever Keita was supposed to do, he clearly didn't. You know, he, whatever he was instructed to do, he clearly weren't doing it because, you know, Klopp would not remove a player after the mm. 41 minutes because he's playing. Well, I suppose he would, but I think he's done it with Lovren because he was simply just playing badly. But I think a lot of it was just that Keita weren't really doing what he was supposed to be doing. He seemed really high in certain moments. I recall a little bit of a, a moment where there was kind of a gesture from, from Klopp towards Keita, where Klopp was kind of looking a bit animated and stuff. And it, I, I, I'll have to watch it back because I'm not certain on this, but it looked like Keita gestured back towards him in a way that, you know, like a confused gesture, like where you put your yeah. hands up and you're like, I don't really, I don't know. It was, it was a bit like, I don't know where I'm supposed to be or something like that. It, it, it's, I'm, it's pure speculation, this one. But... To remove a player after 41 minutes, it's it just kind of captures, you know, what I've, whatever Klopp has told him to do, whatever he's expected from him. Cater's obviously offered quite a lot away from that to the extent that he's needed to be substituted on. 
for them to pick him in the first place was a big show of faith. And I feel like now, moving forward in any big game, really, it probably will pop up in Klopp's head as to, you know, what happened at Madrid? Can, you know, can I trust this player to actually what I'm telling them to do here? Mm. Uh, Just so. the reason why I think it's so big as well, Josh, to carry on your point, is because he's a he's a big man manager as well, isn't he, Klopp? Like that's that's one of his best assets. And you know, pulling someone off after forty one minutes um, is is going to damage their you know own kind of. Uh, Ego, uh, it's probably going to make him a little bit resentful as a player because anybody would be, no matter how you've performed, you know, because we've played not at this level, of course, but at a level, you know, if you got pulled off after 41 minutes, you'd, you'd be hating your manager, you know, you'd be so annoyed at him, even if you know you haven't played well, because you'd be really embarrassed because it's embarrassing. And for him to, who, so, who I think Klopp is a really good. This sounds in a negative, but I mean as a positive. I think Klopp is a really good manipulator of people. You know, he knows how to, you know, work people, make them feel 10 feet tall and things. And I think for Klopp to know the impact that would have and still opt to do it, says to me that he's he's not too... He's kind of give up on Katie a little bit and he's not really bothered about the, the impact it could have pulling them off because there's, there's a wider issue. And if he's, he's to then go and dislike him, sulk, not be part of the team anymore of the same team spirit, then so be it. Because you know this is obviously a bigger, bigger thing that needed to be done. Yeah, I mean, Kate's has talked about you know weirdly really in the in the Liverpool fan base because a lot of play, a lot of people, a lot of supporters don't really understand the hype around them and stuff. And um, although he offers a lot on the data side which captures, like, you know, actions, on-ball actions, events and, and things like that, interceptions, passes into the box, whatever you want to call it. The bottom line is football is played by humans, really, and those human aspects come into the game quite a lot, hence why Henderson's valued so much by Klopp, hence why in certain moments, fairly recently, actually, I recall Liverpool needing a goal, maybe, or Liverpool needing something, and he, Klopp brought Milner on as opposed to Keita. And I think after the game, Klopp actually said maybe in football terms, it would have made more sense to bring on Keita. And people started quote to eat and was like, what what, what does that even mean? What's that? What, what's that? But obviously, from the leadership aspect that Milner brings and stuff, same with Henderson. I don't know Keita, obviously, but he, he strikes me as more of an introverted type player, maybe. Um, mm. you know, he doesn't strike me as as intense. Doesn't strike me as any well intense in the certain way. Obviously, he's obviously very good off off the ball at times and things. But I'm thinking particularly, you know, vocally and things. It's 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 that kind of that kind of department may maybe really falls a little bit short. And I think the people who value that side of the game are probably the people who don't think he's that great and don't really see the numbers. But from a Liverpool perspective, from Klopp's perspective, although the numbers are really important and you, you want them on your side and things, you also need a player to, to, you know, those intangible elements like trust, you know, leadership and determination and things. And it, it did look like the game kind of passed them by, despite the fact he'd been given a real opportunity. Yeah, yeah, I agree totally. He's a... He's an event data king, isn't he, really? But in terms of actual translations into big performances, they're just few and far between. Uh, and then when you throw in the fact that he's got so many issues in terms of actually staying on the pitch, you know, it's they're two big negatives really going against them. So, yeah, I'll be interested to see where, where that goes with him. Um, what did you think of the, the wing-back stuff? What do you think of, of Trent? In terms of how he performed on the day, yeah, I suppose that's obvious, isn't it? But just you know, obviously, we we kind of gave him some credit, didn't we? Um, a little bit early in the show because he played really well against against Arsenal, uh, but he's back under the spotlight a little bit, isn't he? Because of because of the display in this game. Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. First off, Zidane got it spot on. 
for me, very impressive with, impressed with Madrid's general strategy for the game. They seemed to go longer than usual, and that was a deliberate ploy, I thought, to shine a light on Liverpool's struggle on defensive line at times. They seemed to really switch to play frequently. Mm-hmm. They are a team that do that anyway. I think that the, the second maybe in Europe's top five leagues, or certainly top five in Europe's top five leagues, for switches of play per match. So I was expecting that, but they did it a lot. And obviously, given Liverpool's zonal approach to pressing, that can cause Liverpool issues. It caused Liverpool issues earlier in the season against Aston Villa. Um, and, you know, once, once they switched to play, they, they, they had overloads quite frequently. So if it got switched in the direction of Trent's flank, Trent would immediately have to cope with probably Vinicius on the ball. But in addition to that, Mendy would be fairly close, willing to underlap or overlap. And Trent would have to momentarily have to, you know, cope with a double up. Mm. You could argue Henderson in Cater's position would have given him a bit more support. But at the same time, it, it is a systemic thing attached to Liverpool's game that everyone shuffles over to one side and the switch of play can cause Liverpool issues if there isn't enough pressure on the ball. So I think just generally, Madrid just played more vertically than usual, switched the play a lot, overloaded the flanks and obviously tested Liverpool in behind. A lot like, I thought it was very similar to how Chelsea played a few weeks back and Chelsea mm. played us off the park at the same time. Um. Why have you have you got general thoughts on on Robertson and Trent then? Not too not too dissimilar to that, to be honest. What you've basically said there captures a lot of what I was thinking. Uh, I thought Madrid did really well. Thought what really stood out for me with Madrid doing it was um, they just have phenomenal, you know, technical players, don't they? So these kind of in tight areas, they have the ability to switch the ball with very little backlift and very quickly and control it very quickly as well. Um, I think that's what it really stands out. When you think of, obviously, the ad, uh, Cruz, you know, the usual Modric, Casemiro, these these players are just so so easily able to move the ball out so quick. And then the attackers, Vinicius, they, they just seem to take it down so quick and be able to, you know, get get on the move and, and uh, drive with the ball, dribble with the ball really quickly. And um, I think that's that's why it really punished these switches of play and the getting the ball forward punished Liverpool so much because um, technically they were just fantastic. You know, they, it was just everything was pinpoint. Everything was swift, fast. And I think when you're playing the game at that speed and moving the ball that quickly, it's, it's really hard to defend against. Since the match, a lot of criticism again as again surfaced regarding Liverpool's high line. Obviously, the first goal in particular shined a light on it as a as an obvious flaw. Tony Cruz with a simple ball over the top in the direction of Vinicius Junior, who then scored. I've just wrote a piece on it actually this morning, and it's just gone live. So if you want to read that, that's on my Twitter at distance covered. But I think what I'm what I'm trying to capture in the piece is that. Obviously, the high line looked bad on the night, but that's the same high line that absolutely dominated Arsenal three days earlier. And I think it's it. Klopp said after the game, his exact words were, "It that the high line isn't the issue. It it's what happens in front of of the high line in terms of the pressure on the ball and the usage of the ball. If you give the ball away in silly areas." And combine that with not enough pressure on the ball, and you keep the high line. It's gonna get exploded every every time. It's gonna get exploded every time. So the Marco and, and Silva effect. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah, the Villas boss. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, p- people have suggested that Klopp's defensive line should should go a little bit deeper. I understand those shouts, but. I'm just trying to specifically capture why Klopp isn't doing that as much. And although he's got weaker centre-backs, all his midfielders, his two full-backs, and all of his forwards, they're all fit. So if, if And they're all available and things. So if, if they all defend and press how they're supposed to, the high line should not suffer anywhere near as much as it did against Madrid. 
but for whatever reason, the pressing was miles off. I'm not sure what Liverpool's intentions was off the ball. It looked like they were reluctant to press Madrid high. It looked like they wanted to form maybe a little bit more of a a middle block sort of thing, but still with the same level of pressing. But in terms of pressing, like the likes of Courtois, it looked like Liverpool were a little bit reluctant to do that. But that kind of linked towards just a general approach to just not press the ball at all. <laughs> um, yeah. Hence, hence Cruz's pass over the top, which was a great ball, but he probably doesn't make that pass anywhere near to the same degree of quality if he's got Mane in his face, you know, as he's making the pass. So, it really was keeping his head down. Mm. Yeah, it, it really was a strange defensive approach, I thought, Dave. Yeah, yeah, so did I. To, as I said, I touched on it about 10 minutes ago. The PPDA was was way down. It was just... I'd, may, I think maybe maybe the pool didn't expect Madrid's midfielders, the, the key ones like like Cruz, to, to come into those deeper positions or... There was a delay, and maybe who were who were the attackers were to to drop in with him, you know, and kind of screen that area. I don't know, but um, that that indecision potentially in those open that open forty five minutes in terms of who's picking up these these players who can play those penetrative of balls um, ultimately proved so costly. So yeah, maybe that was it. I mean, I can't see it being that because a. You know your top ball playing. Maybe I'd have to watch the game again, see how, how the dynamics of the game played out. But when you've got um, ball playing midfielders like that, it's it's really normal for them to for them to drop deep, drop into the defence. You know, get on the ball and start dictating play. Um, but as I said, just watching the game, it felt to me like they were doing that, and maybe Liverpool weren't organised in, in terms of who was meant to be closing that down or who was meant to be. Screen in that area, following that player. I don't know, but it did. Uh, it did end up punishing big time uh, because of the quality that they've got. Yeah, it, it, it feel different. It would feel different if the likes of Cruz and Modric offered an absolute clinic on how to avoid pressure. But it yeah. felt like they. It felt like they didn't. It felt like they just got a free reign. It felt like Liverpool just let them play. And I just the reason I wrote the piece and the reason I'm bringing it up now is because I think you know in future games. Obviously, the high line always gets blamed. It gets blamed by pundits on the TV and stuff. Peter Crouch flagged it. Um, mm. But I think I just want to I want to bring the conversation more towards when, when Liverpool suffer from what seems to be a high line issue, rather than thinking drop deeper. Liverpool needs to drop deeper. I want us to start thinking, okay, what's the pressure on the ball, and th- and and where was the ball given away, and and things like that, because then. A light is going to be shined on the high line if if those come first. It's 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 not to the same level, but it's kind of like blaming Allison for conceding from a cross when Trent could have stopped the cross or Robertson could have stopped the cross. You want to look at the source of the issue for me, and I think I don't think the source is the high line. I think the source is usually the pressing or where the ball's being lost. Um, mm. Liverpool just have to be better at that certainly a lot better for the second half se- second leg do you think Liverpool will stand any chance Dave? Yeah I do actually uh, you know not based on that 90 minutes obviously but it's going to be another game you know it'll be a fresh 90 minutes um, Liverpool at home okay no crowd but I still think you've got your home comforts haven't you uh, and fear I think you're talking about Liverpool beating Real Madrid 2-0 at Anfield. You know, that is not without the realms of possibility. You know, it, it could be done. Um, and I, I just, I expect uh, the wrongs to be corrected from that game next week. But that being said, I don't think it's a given either. You know, I think Real Madrid highlighted themselves as a team who've still got a lot of quality. Um a very astute team, you know, you can tell have played these games year in, year out. I know Liverpool have been performing at the highest level now for two or three years, but you can tell Real Madrid have just been doing this again and again and again for years. And it feels like even though they're missing a few key players, they've still got that kind of experience throughout the side. So, um, it's not quite that Barcelona game, is it, of a couple of years ago, but a comeback's needed. 
And I think I think it's doable. In short, I think it's doable, but I'm just not sure whether it will will happen. It's 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 really on it. I feel like I'm sitting on the fence, but I just can't call it, Josh. Really can't call it. At the minute, I don't have that much hope, but it could be as a product of watching the game last night. You know, if Liverpool play really well on the weekend, I'll probably turn again. Mm. But just considering there's no fans in the ground, and especially Liverpool's problems in defence every now and then, I just I think I can't see Liverpool keeping a clean sheet. I think that's the issue. I can see Madrid scoring one. Just I, I was impressed with Zidane's approach and things. So mm. I, I wouldn't be surprised if Liverpool don't concede one, and if Liverpool do concede one, they have to score three, um, which is a bit unlikely the way things are going at the minute. Again, according to five thirty-eight, according to that model, Liverpool have a twenty percent chance of progressing. Not that bad, but still not great. Madrid obviously an eighty percent chance. So I, I thought it bad. actually no, I think that's fair. I, I don't know what I was going to say then, but no, okay, yeah, that's that's probably <laughs> reasonable. My only my only um, hope really is that we now have a full game to analyse. Klopp can very clearly show his players what went wrong, what to fix, and if he feels the team that executes exactly what he wants. Liverpool can do really well. You know, Liverpool beat Leipzig 2-0 twice in both legs, I think, didn't he, Dave? Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, um, you could argue Leipzig are better on the defensive side than Real Madrid. Real Madrid will probably still be without Ramos. I think they'll still be without Varane, I'm right in saying. Yeah. So it, it, yeah, it, yeah it, it is possible. Liverpool just have to be a lot better than, than, than what they were. You can't expect to perform like that and get in from a game you deserve to go to the competition. When you're playing like yeah. that, I, I did yeah. notice a few times that a few gaps did open as well. You know, like uh, Jota making a good run through the middle, beating that kind of man marking system, and centre backs being coarse. It just felt like it, it, Liverpool plays in possession were missing those runs. Uh, so maybe when the videos watch back, it'll be pinpointed that you know, it, here's your window of opportunity, play the ball here, and be a little bit braver. Then maybe that'll prove decisive. Yeah, hopefully Liverpool find a way around it. Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. In the meantime, Liverpool face Aston Villa. Um, probably a, a nice-ish fixture to have in between the European tie. But at the same time, obviously because Liverpool huge problems early in the season, remains to be seen whether Jack Grealish will play. But general thoughts on Villa at the moment, they've, they've certainly fell off a little bit since the last time we spoke, I think. Um <laughs> Yeah. Having said that, they just won, I think, 3-1 against Fulham on the weekend. Yeah, yeah, but uh, they, I don't think it was the best performance, really, for the first 75 minutes or whatever. Just uh, obviously come back strong, didn't they? Three goals late on, but yeah, it's weird. You know, It's it, Villa have been quite fun this year. Um, I've quite liked them. In fact, I like them a lot. You know, there's a lot to like. Uh, Grealish and a few other really good attackers. Um, underlying numbers have been quite good. Uh, last time I checked, anyway, I haven't looked in a while, I'll be honest. But I think without Grealish, they're just a completely different side. You know, he is he is their attack, isn't he? Really, um, you know, he's the target of a lot of uh, a lot of their possession. Certainly going forward, um, he creates almost everything. <laughs> um, and without them, you see what he struggles. You know, I'm I'm not looking underlying numbers here, just just purely goals. But I think since he's been out, it was. Failed to score against Sheffield United, failed to score against Wolves, just one goal against Newcastle, uh, no goals against Tottenham. Obviously, they got the three against Fulham, but uh, to, to kind of blank against Sheffield United, Wolves, and just score one against Newcastle um, isn't really a good reflection of either attack. Uh, I think they've definitely missed Grealish. So, I think it's as strong as two different sides with or without Grealish. Without Grealish, I think Villa Liverpool win fairly comfortably with him. It becomes a little bit more difficult. Yeah, I probably agree. But I did write fairly recently about Grealish. Um, and although they've certainly fell off a little bit without him, there was kind of something emerging a little bit when he was in the team. He fell off since. 
I mean, look, looking at their numbers here now, the expected goals for and against in each game they've played, it's been quite a while since they had a game that they deserved to win by the looks mm-hmm. of it. So against Fulham recently, obviously they ended up winning 3-1, so they finished the chances and stuff. But the expected goals in that game, 1.6 to Villa, 1.6 to Fulham. So that's kind of, you know, flip of a coin, if you like. That's what we like to call it. In terms of Spurs, the week before, they posted an expected goals of 0.5 and Spurs posted 2.2. week earlier against Newcastle United, they posted 0.7. Newcastle United posted 1.1. And that's been consistently about the case, you know, for or against slightly. But they, have, they haven't really put that kind of flip of a coin to bed since they faced Burnley on match week 20. That was roughly at the end of January. The 27th of January, they faced Burnley. They actually lost 3-2. But the expected goals suggest that they the, the, the dominated that game. They dominated the performance. 2.1 expected goals. Burnley posted 0.5. That's that kind of looks at a gem, at, at a glance that looks like the last game he, he actually deserved to fully win, really. So mm. they're certainly not performing to the same level. Um, obviously they struggle to basically get into valuable areas without Grealish compared to when he's on the pitch. He's probably the best in Europe, Dave, when it comes to carrying the ball into into the penalty box. Last time I checked, I think he was above Kylian Mbappe in in top spot. Yeah, yeah, he's uh, really good at you know penetrating into the area with carries and a really good dribble even from deep and wins a ton of fouls. Um, whether you think he goes down it easy or not, doesn't matter. Uh, I think he he's really good at sucking defenders in and then you know getting fouls, which can be quite important in terms of getting your team up the pitch, creating good set piece opportunities. Um, but obviously, what he's got to go with as well, he's got really good kind of final ball delivery as well. Um, you know, so he does. I think there's there is players in the Premier League who are really good at carrying the ball, but they lack that final ball. But Grealish has, has got that as well. He's a he's he's clearly one of the best players in the league, um, and that's why I think he's just so important to Villa. Um, it'd be interesting to see if he if he does end up going anywhere in the summer because I think he could play at the very highest level. I know there's always talk about. The difficulty in terms of getting them into teams, you know, if there's, if there's any sort of uh, concessions that need to be made to the to, to the makeup of the side, but just parking all that to to one side for the moment. I, I think in terms of player, he's just he's fantastic, a great player who can you can do a lot for your attack. Yeah, I think he's stepped up this season. He's he, he's reached a bit of a different level this season. It'll be interesting to see. Because I th- I think they will exec- they will try at least to execute pretty much exactly the same game that delivered seven goals against us, and I don't think it's that different to what Real Madrid did. To be honest, it'll be interesting to see if they can execute it to that same level without Grealish on the pitch. Obviously, we don't really know yet. I think Dean Smith's become a bit of a meme to be honest the past couple of weeks because he's permanently saying he's close, he's round the corner. Yeah, he's, he's very you know, coy, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, it, it's. I haven't liked it, to be honest, you know, just as a side note. I think it sends a bad message to the rest of your squad if you're unwilling to say, yeah, Jack can't play, but we'll cope fine. It's like he's been so reliant on Grealish that every week he's been saying, well, you might play, you might not. It, I just think it sends a bad message to your team. Mm. Mm. Um, but in terms of the, the approach that Villa will take, I think they'll try and do exactly what they did before against Liverpool. It just Doing that without Grealish will be will be difficult and obviously will benefit Liverpool. I think he might be on the bench or he might play a short period, but I don't think he'll play the full match. And that's obviously a good thing for Liverpool. He's going to be integral to any game plan they, that they employ. Um, so in terms, of, in terms of predictions, Dave, on this one? Uh, it'd be great if Dean Smith tipped us off a little bit in terms of his playing. Uh yeah. I don't know, to be honest. It's it's an awkward game, isn't it? So I've in between a, a kind of season definer or tie, season defining tie with Real Madrid. Uh it's it's difficult to know. Not only what Villa team's gonna appear, but what Liverpool team's gonna mm, appear. Yeah, good point. Because that, that yes, he was a span in the works, wasn't it? You know, you could have kind of 
it felt like there was method behind that team selection. It backfired. So there was Jota start on the bench and bringing Firmino back in and have Jota kind of bringing his impact in the second half. I don't know. Uh, you know what? I'm going to go for the 1-1. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, don't know where to start on this one. As I said, it's two teams that are changing with the wind a little bit at the minute. I think I'm going to go 2 0 Liverpool. Um, but despite saying that, I don't think it's going to be a breeze by any means. But I don't think Greedy is going to play. And I think Liverpool will try to, try to, try to right the wrongs of what happened in Madrid by pressing the ball a lot and given that Liverpool are now going for fourth with something to play for, it's kind of a must win. It's not mm. it's not really as it's not really like that for Villa Villa kind of just where they are at the minute. I don't really think they can play for much. So yeah, I'm gonna hope for the two two nil. In terms of the Madrid game, I think we should probably avoid a preview, do you reckon? Prediction. <laughs> I think it's hard at this stage, isn't it really? Yeah. We're doing this very early of course and Liverpool have just for the three-one defeat last night, so I don't I think. I, Go on. What I will say is, I feel like that Liverpool camp, like fans and stuff, yourself included, I think it will be a little bit more confidence this time next week. I just think that the, the, the results are raw, isn't it? And let's be honest, it was unexpected. You know, let's let's be blunt about it. We kind of predicted Liverpool win. Uh, Varane obviously getting injured, uh, sorry, yeah, getting COVID, uh, kind of added to that. Oh, it's probably going to be a nice, nice evening for Liverpool, and um, so I think it's just a little bit raw. But yeah, maybe by tomorrow, every everyone will be kind of rejuvenated and confident again. Yeah, well, listen. Hopefully, by the time we next record, which will be next Thursday, I think we'll have better stuff to talk about. Hopefully, we'll have a Champions League semi-final to preview and all that sort of stuff. You never know. But uh, thanks for joining us, Dave. Thank you, mate. Cheers, everyone. And we will be back next week to address the usual Liverpool stories. So thanks for tuning in and see you next week. You've been listening to the Analyzing Anfield podcast on the Blood Red channel.